Hello, this is Risa Courier, host of the Alliance podcast, coming to you from the Humane Rescue Alliance in Washington, D.C. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Daisha Pierce. She is the Director of Strategic Initiatives at ACT Philly in Philadelphia. Thank you so much, Daisha, for making the time to come on. Sure. Thank you for having me. Well, Daisha, you have a really cool title, Director <laughs> of Strategic Initiatives. Can you tell me a little bit about it and what you do at ACT Philly? Sure, absolutely. I've been with ACT since the beginning of uh, March of this year, and I was brought on um, to essentially complement the team. Um, we have a fantastic new executive director, Aurora Velasquez, and um, what she is trying to do is really sort of revolutionize uh, this facility. Um, she started with an expansion and you know, one of the things that her and I talked about during the interview for this position was, you know, the necessity to not just um, improve the face of a facility, you know, or, or do an expansion and make it look really nice, but also do that work on the inside. So she wanted me to fill this position so that um, I would fit into a role where with my years of experience, I could bring to the table working with all of the existing directors to go through, evaluate all of their departments, you know, see where they want their teams to go, how they want them to grow, and then essentially do the work um, with them to help them get there. So it is quality assurance, it's training, you know, it's a lot of one-on-ones, it's team growth. Uh, it is it's just sort of a all-around type of position. And it's super exciting for me because it's, it's a lot like things I've done before, but not just, you know, focusing on this specific region, if that makes sense. Yes. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. And it, it, it sounds like a great job, particularly for someone that has the diverse background that you do uh, working in animal welfare. I spoke to Aurora um, on this podcast not too long ago, and it was one of our, I think it is our most listened, listened to podcast. So I'm, I'm super excited to see what you all are doing in Philadelphia. And I love the spirit and enthusiasm that you all approach your work with. So I think um, I told Aurora, like, this is going to have to be a series um, where I just keep checking in with you all and learning about all the progress you're making. Yeah. So you you've you've worn a lot of different hats um, in animal welfare. So could you tell me a little bit about what drew you to a career in animal welfare in the first place? Well, you know, one of the earliest memories that I have from my childhood uh, was with a dog that we had um, a family pet named Midnight. And he was like, the closest thing to a sibling for me at that time, even though I have two sisters and a brother, our age difference is, is sort of vast. So I was the youngest. I came along late to the scene and um, I had Midnight who like wanted to listen to all my stories and <laughs> talk about all the things I wanted to talk about, you know, and I would paint his nails and, <laughs> and do all these things. And at the time, I didn't know what kind of dog he was, but, you know, thinking of him, he was probably like a Doberman. And, you know, my, um, he would, I had a really close connection with him. And I remember 
coming home from school and him not being there and finding out that my father had sold him for drugs. And so he had actually sold him to a neighbor that didn't live far from us. Um, and, you know, we, me and my, my siblings, we ran over and we tried to talk this guy into giving him back to us. And, and he wouldn't because he was afraid of my father. And so I would go and I would visit him all the time. He, the guy kept him in the backyard and just over time, he, at first he was like really excited and he looked great. And over time, he just looked skinnier and skinnier and skinnier. And, you know, I would just stand there. And I remember eventually being sort of like the last one to keep going to see him. And eventually he was just gone. You know, he, he wouldn't get up anymore. And I mean, we never got word that he died, but I assumed that he died. And right. it just sort of stuck with me for my whole life. And I, I just always sort of had this void. And I just wanted to, I knew that when I tried to figure out what I wanted to do with my life, I wanted it to be something that meant something. Yes. So, you know, even if I, whether I was working with animals or working with children or working on a hospital, you know, I, I needed whatever I did to mean something. And I think that that's sort of why you know, if you sort of look at how I bounced around a lot in my career, you know, I just I went to places that I thought that I could be most helpful. And I did everything that I could to attain the experience needed to make a difference in different roles. You know, if I was a frontline worker and I felt like the system is not working right, you know, I, I can't. Right. then I would think of, well, what can I do other than complain about it? You know, um, so eventually I just sort of worked my way up and worked my way up to try and be a person who could not just complain about those issues or see those issues, but make a tangible difference um, in those facilities and, and try and help people not feel the way that I felt uh, when I was early in my career. And, you know, so that's the short version. <laughs> Sorry to be sad. No, no, that's such a powerful story about midnight. And I'm sorry you had to go through that. And I think a lot of of us that end up in animal welfare, it is a story like that that yes. inspires us to to take on this career. And um, you know, and we keep that story close to our heart as we we try to struggle for change and you know to improve the lives of other animals. I I had a similar situation where I I grew up um, when I was a child in Indiana and um, my family kept two dogs outdoors mm -hmm. and that was just an acceptable way, right? Right. For dogs to live outdoors. And I remember, you know, one of the dogs just deteriorating, essentially, um, you know, he was, he wanted to be inside. He wanted to be a family dog, but at that time that just wasn't accepted that dogs should live indoors. And so I think for those of us who really believe that dog animals are part of our family and um, should be treated um, with compassion. It's, it's what drives us to do, to do our work today. And also, you know, the understanding that, you know, part of this is helping others see that, see that and see um, what sharing a life with, with an animal could look like. So absolutely. 
Wow. Well, I'm I'm so glad that you're with the team at Act Philly now. And me too. It's so exciting. <laughs> it is so exciting. Like I, I just I, you know, everything you guys have going on um, with your pet pantry and just the, the, the building and um, it just seems like you guys are on the precipice of some really awesome work there. And I'm excited to see that. And I think you guys have the right team in place to get it done. So um, congratulations on on you know, your new role and, um, you know, being part of a leadership team. Thank you so much. Yeah, I knew when I when I started looking, one of the things I really wanted was to work for someone that I could respect and grow from. Mm-hmm. And I really feel like that's what we have. Yeah. So I just wanted to add that I, we have a great team and we have great leadership. So it's, it's definitely very inspiring. Good. Well, I'm glad you you deserve that, Daisha. So part of the reason that I wanted to to talk to you on the podcast is we were we were on a national call together. Gosh, it was almost I think a month ago, and we were talking about the Black Lives Matter movement and um, how that relates to um, the work that we do in animal welfare, particularly when a lot of our staff and our board is mostly composed of white people, a lot of white women. And then, you know, a lot of the clientele we serve are communities of color. And, um, you know, this is this is a tough dynamic for for I think us as an industry to kind of take on. And I was so impressed when you spoke out on that call of 200, over 200 people. And, and you shared a really um, difficult story about what it's been like for you uh, working in this industry. And once the story you shared was that, you know, in doing fundraising and philanthropy, you often found that you had to bring one of your white colleagues with you to to be heard and, and to be treated, you know, with the respect and, and, and deference that that the work you were trying to do required. Could you, could you tell me a little bit about that, what you shared on the call? Sure. So I... I was previously working with a facility that, you know, they, they weren't doing well. They really didn't have a presence outside the shelter. They didn't have a logo. They didn't have a Facebook page. It was, it was a lot of work that needed to be done. Um, but there was so, so much potential. Uh, and one of the things that I looked at was, who are we working with? Who are we not working with? And I'm, I'm, I just had the kind of personality that, you know, I'm going to go there. I'm going to meet you. I'm going to shake your hand not right now because of COVID, but <laughs> you know, I'm going to be right there and I'm going to say, hi, I'm Deja. Let's see how we can work together. You know, um, cause I'm really passionate about this. And I was surprised when I first started to venture outside of the facility, um, to meet folks. And I had encountered a couple of different situations where I would talk to someone on the phone or I would share an email with them and then I would see them in person and the, you know, the attitude would completely change people. I had a gentleman, actually, I would ask questions and he would refuse to look at me to answer Mm. me. And, you know, I, for me, you know, 
When you work in animal welfare, you, I think, are in an environment where you're oftentimes trying to make the best of what you have, you know, whether mm -hmm. you don't have enough staff or you don't have enough volunteers, or you don't have enough money for supplies. So I think that that type of environment forces you to work outside of the box and, and sort of look beyond those borders or barriers. And so once I started to realize that the way that I looked, how people perceived me or whatever they thought that I was that didn't make them feel uncomfortable, I mean, make them feel comfortable, I needed to figure out a way to just work around that because, you know, animals didn't stop coming in, the shelter's needs didn't change, and I still had a job to do that I was really passionate about. So... I started taking some of the staff members with me and I was the only minority working in the building. So it wasn't like, you know, I had to look really hard right. to find someone else, but I started taking people with me. And, um, one of the young ladies that I took with me was scared to go. She, she was very, she had a phobia with public speaking. And I was like, listen, girl, we are going to work on this. You know, <laughs> she, she's an amazing person, you know, and she worked really, really hard. She would go with me to schools and I would just hand her a microphone uh, and she would turn just beet red, you know, but I realized that in doing this, it made it easier for me to speak with people within that community and, and talk to schools and potential partners. And, you know, the only place I really hadn't come into that sort of issue was the surrounding shelters. When I would go and talk to some of the leaders there, they were very welcoming and opening but they were also women who had just come into roles just like me and they were changing those facilities. So I think I got lucky in that, you know, sense, mm -hmm. but had I been dealing with the people who were previously running those facilities, it would have probably been a lot harder for me. We worked under uh, the, a government organization and the woman who ran a part of that uh, organization was a white woman. And I even found that sometimes if I was on scene with her and I was the person on scene with the most amount of experience and expertise, people would walk up to her, ask her the question. She would look at me. I would say the answer and then they would ask her the next question. So, mm, you know, goodness. I just... You, you figure out, you get used to it in a way, and, and you figure out how to work around it. Well, it, you know, I think about how much energy, you know, this work just takes to do it in a very straightforward way. But then you have the an additional drain and requirements and resources that you have to allocate to these workarounds. Yeah, um, it, it is. It can be really exhausting. I had a few interactions with uh, when I went to this facility with some members of the public. I received emails calling me the N-word, saying that I didn't belong there. I worked with a bunch of different towns in that area. I had a animal control officer come into the building and tell me that I should go back to Philly where the rats are and gestured his hand like it was a gun at me and said, you know, we take care of things in a different way here. 
And th this was, and to be clear, the context of that conversation was about me just saying, hey, what do you think about TNR? <laughs> you know, we're trying to help out with some of the straight cats in, in, this, in the towns and stuff. And this person was extremely offended that I asked that and was very quick to just let me know that I was not welcome and this was not Philly and I needed to go back to where I belonged. So, it, you know, but, and then I have to continue. I want to continue that conversation with that person. Okay. This today didn't work out well, but maybe tomorrow will be better. Well, and, and again, that's just you having to, you know, you're trying to get your job done. You're trying to help the animals, but then on top of that, you're also dealing with having to educate and, and decide how you are going to approach the situation with somebody that has a problem with you that they shouldn't have. And the other thing to add to this is, you know, these situations were happening to you when you were in New Jersey, right? It's right. You know, this is most people, I think, and I, I think that's really important for people listening. Like this wasn't happening in the deep south and, you know, a quote unquote red state. This is happening in New Jersey and um, that these kind of, you know, overt aggressions and these microaggressions, this is this is happening everywhere. And so, you know, I think as as I listen to you, you know, one thing I think we can do and we need to be mindful of as colleagues and as supervisors that we, we that shouldn't all fall on you dealing with individuals like that like some you know someone else from the organization can intervene and and let that individual know that's not appropriate and that's not okay and that's not an acceptable way of engaging with someone from this organization that it should it shouldn't fall to you to have to overcome the way he's treating you so you can get your job done. Right. And it is just a, it's an overwhelming kind of feeling, especially if you are a person of color in a facility and, and you kind of, you already feel sort of like on an Island and, and it's, it's a hard thing to try and get other people to understand you know, when you try and explain that these situations happen, they're just like, oh, this person is just being a jerk. And you're like, nah, you know, it, there, there were comments that were made specifically to me, like words like, you know, ghetto and things like that, that were not reserved for other people, you know, mm -hmm. who had far like, you know, we, we had some characters, you know, it's animal welfare. Um, <laughs> we're equal opportunity. I think that that's one of the most fantastic things about animal welfare is that we get people from all walks of life, you know, and we had some, some different characters and, and a lot of different personalities and people who, you know, um, were not respectful or tactful or, or appropriate but they were never referred to as ghetto. You know, they were never referred to as like hood. And it wasn't until I started working there that, you know, we had racial comments written in the restrooms, you know? So these were just 
things that happen over the years and then you you sort of you walk in and you have that burden on your shoulders yes and it makes you feel like you have to constantly compensate for what other people might be thinking about you you know what am i smiling enough do i sound happy enough you know are people going to think i'm aggressive or you know and it's it's so heavy such a heavy burden to bear on top of trying to you know, pull up your stats and get your social media stuff going. <laughs> right. Do your job. It's, right. it's, it, you have a whole other, it's two, it's two full-time jobs. And, you know, and I heard someone once describe it as it's like getting a paper cut, you know, all of these, all of these interactions are, are like a paper cut, but after a while, even enough paper cuts, you are bleeding. It is painful. Right. And, so it's like the accumulative impact of experiencing this regularly. Of course, it's going to impact you in, in many ways. It's painful. Right. And I mean, even before this job, you know, I, I experienced several, similar things at other places that, again, like you said, are not deep, you know, red states. And, and you know, I experienced a situation in Philadelphia where, I had an employee that I was having some trouble with and it was early in my career and I was the first time I was supervising anybody and, you know, I, I just didn't know what to do. It seemed like this gentleman was really saucy every time I talked to him yeah. <laughs> and I thought, why doesn't this guy like me? Like, what am I doing wrong here? And so I went to the manager and I was just like, you know, can you give me some advice on, on how to work with folks who might come off this way and what should I do? And it, and the first thing he said to me was, you know, it's not uncommon for black men not to want to listen to white women. And I, I you know, I think because I was sort of shocked that that came up, it was not even a thought in my mind mm. that something like that would come up. And being a person who's multi-ethnic, I... I think my first thought was, does he think I'm white? Yeah. You know? And then my second thought was, wait, why are we talking about race? Like this, this has mm -hmm. nothing to do with this, but I love this job and I, and I love this place. And I, and I, you know, I just stood there and I stood quiet and then he gave me some advice and I took the advice and I ended up just talking to this young man and we worked things out. But just the fact that that was something that was given to me as advice really caught me off and you know that's full it well, off and it's it's a cop-out too because you know you talked to that guy that you were having trouble supervising and you discovered you know he was having some issues in his home life that were right. being this like friction of what he was bringing his home situation to work every day as many of us do so it's like that that is not we all do that, regardless right. of our background or our ethnicity. And that is a common managerial issue is, mm -hmm. you know, people are bringing the stress or conflict of home into the job. And so, right, it has nothing to do. And that was that was just a, a very inappropriate way to kind of deal with something and a very racist way. So, uh, you know, you um, when I've talked to you before your um, your background and, and seeing things in a, in a multi-dimensional way has really informed the way 
that you engage with the communities you serve. And, you know, when you pointed out, it's like often animal welfare groups, you know, we're, you know, we have our, our, our righteous goals in mind and we pull our van up into these neighborhoods and, and right. sources <laughs> and tell people what they need to do with their pet. And, and tell me how your background has really informed your, how you, you approach these communities with more of a listening and more of a community partnership perspective. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I always found it to be, I, I, I get it. I get the like jumping out of the van, planting the flag, the heroes are here. Say thank you. <laughs> you know, it feels great to be able to bring resources to an underserved community. It feels fantastic to, to make a tangible difference. Trust me. I mean, that is something that, you know, I, I absolutely love about animal welfare. And it's the reason why I've been drawn historically to places that needed a lot of work because, you know, selfishly, I like to look back and go, you know, we got this done. Right. Um, so I get it, but I know that, you know, being a multi-ethnic person and and sort of being able to see things, not just from that perspective, but from various different perspectives, you know, culturally, it is for for some people, it doesn't seem ethical or morally right to spay or neuter. You know, it, it, that's not the way that they were raised. That's not the things that they were taught. Um, you know, you have, I've encountered some people uh, even in North Philadelphia, who are just like, you're not God. Like to them, it's, it's such a, it's a bigger thing and, and such a, a broad conversation culturally, just the differences. And I think that sometimes we just have to, I know we want to change the world like yesterday, but I think that we're missing out on going into, you know, areas and neighborhoods and sort of cultivating these relationships and, 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 and installing trust with the people there and, and saying to them, what do you think about this? And, and let's have a conversation about it. And let's talk to, you know, local women's groups and women's centers. And, uh, you know, let's reach out to churches. Churches have such a huge influence and, and, and pull and they bring people in. And, you know, we just, I feel like there's such a huge opportunity out there for us to make these connections and get trust and understanding from the community that we want to so badly serve and help. And oftentimes what we do is we just come in, plant our flag, say, this is the way it is. And it feels almost like, you know, what is happening with, with things like gentrification now. And people feel like, they feel overwhelmed. They feel like someone's coming in. And even though your message is a good one and, and the research shows that everything you're trying to do is the right thing, because you've sort of just avoided that initial contact and communication, it, it feels like a burden. It feels like people are being bulldozed. Um, and that's the feedback that I've gotten and the conversations that I've had with people in the community and it, it doesn't matter what shelter I've been at. I, we've had a hostile customer, usually a person of color. And, you know, staff will come and get me, not where we are now, but I'm talking about the previous shelters. You know, staff will come and get me and say, you got to talk to this person. They're so angry. And five minutes in, we're laughing together. You know, just it, 
you know, you can't just sort of say these are the rules and this is what it is. You have to you have to listen to people and have empathy. And people are such a huge part of animal welfare. Um, just that mindset of even with staff workers working in animal welfare, you I would hear a lot of times in interviews, I want to work with animals because I don't like people. And I'd say, well, right. you should probably rethink your career choice. <laughs> Right. Well, and, you know, I think it's, it's, you know, we're, we're all, you and I are participating in these same calls where it's, it's this like awakening in animal welfare that, oh, yeah, there are actually people attached to the animals we're caring for. And it's sort of this aha moment that there's all these organizations, just like, you know, faith-based organizations, churches and um, community centers that have been caring for these communities and in relationship with these communities for a really long time. And, and then we just operate in our silo, treating the animal and caring for the animal, but not really giving consideration or devoting resources to creating a relationship with the human beings that are living with this animal. And so, I mean, I'm sort of like amazed that we're we're finally coming to this point and happy that it, it's happening. But it also feels like, really, we're just now we're starting right. to have this awareness that there's people attached to the animals. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I had a staff member one time who was, you know, and I, and I try to, even at the Jersey shelters, I, I had staff members make comments to me that were inappropriate. And these were not... I don't want to give the impression that people that I dealt with, I, I felt that they were, you know, intentionally racist or, or horrible. Or I just think that sometimes they would have these biases that would come into play and and they weren't always, you know, conscious of them. And, and they would just sort of say things. And and so I would try and take that opportunity to make it a learning moment. Mm-hmm. Um, if they were open to that, you know, not like with the gentleman that that guy was just like really upset and it wasn't a, a right time to try and approach that kind of conversation with him, you know, but with some of the other staff members that I've had um, both there and at other facilities, you know, and to me, it's no different approaching a race issue as approaching a ownership issue. You know, to me, it it sort of all falls in the same where you just have this automatic assumption that if someone is coming to your shelter and utilizing the services that you're there to, to provide to them, that they are for some reason, you know, less than worthy of, of animal ownership, that they are bad in some way, and, you know, when I would hear staff members talk about owners who were surrendering, you know, I would immediately engage in that conversation with them. And, and you know, I remember one person was saying to me, oh, this person didn't care and they didn't know about this and they didn't know about that. And, you know, and how that they should have never had an animal. And and I said, well, shame on us. Mm-hmm. You know, what are we not doing that the people in our community who are pet owners don't know these things. You know, are we just sitting here waiting for people to come to us and ask us questions? You know, that to me, I always saw it as an opportunity for us to meet people where they are instead of waiting and, you know, 
try and make them better pet owners than however we perceive them to be, you know, as opposed to just judging them and taking animals from them. And I saw it a lot, especially with minorities and people of a um, lower socioeconomic status, that there was just this immediate assumption that they don't care as much, that they don't love animals as much, and, and just so on. Well, and that's an important point, Deisha. It's like our, if we're really effective at what we do, that our organization should be the first call. We should be the first resource that individuals think of, not the place of last resort where we everything else has failed. They, they are now coming to us at the worst moment and they've they have fig- tried to figure out every other avenue on their own and they walk into our shelter as a last resort and i feel like i'm with you i think that's where we're failing like how do we make sure and we're, we're integrated enough into the community so they know we are a resource we're the first call that they should be making and we're going to meet them and support them and 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 work with them so we can keep that pet in that home where they're loved. Right. Could I just ask you about, um, you developed a really cool program in your last position in New Jersey where you worked with Meals on Wheels to support the recipients of, of, of that service. Could you, could you tell me how that even came up and how you came up with that idea and, and what that project looked like? Sure, absolutely. And I, it just, I love, love, love this, this whole program. Um, and I'm so happy that they're still doing it at the shelter. So in, um, at this particular facility, we had an opportunity because of our location. We were on campus with a lot of other gov, like government entities, you know, and the, you know, in my, in my, position, I was an operations director. I thought, you know, how can I get us connected with like all these people? And, you know, why aren't we working with all these other buildings? And, you know, where are we missing out here? And so I, I had the honor of meeting a woman who ran the Meals on Wheels program. And, you know, her name is Carla. She's absolutely amazing person, beautiful person. And we got to talking, you know, and, and, I had said to her, do you have any clients that have pets? And she said, yeah, you know, I'm absolutely sure that we do. And, you know, and I started to wonder, like, now these people, they weren't coming to the shelter. I don't know them. They probably weren't even in a place where they may need to surrender. But I'm thinking before we ever get there, you know, is there a way that an animal welfare organization can work with a human welfare organization? And how can we sort of merge those things and, and make that work? And so we were talking and talking and talking. And so we both came up with this idea of doing a survey, just maybe five or six questions that weren't invasive. And, and we took a lot of time really thinking about how we would approach it because it was really important to both of us that we didn't want to make clients feel like there was a threat that if they could not provide for their pets that we were going to take them because we understood that oftentimes the pets with some of the Mills on Wheels clients were the only company that they had aside from 
the Mills on Wheels people who were coming in and dropping off those mills and talking with them. So we definitely didn't want to make them feel threatened in any way. So we put together this survey. Uh, Carla did all the work. She, you know, went to all the clients. She handled the survey. Um, she did an amazing job. And she came back to me and we, we sat down and met again. And the results were just like, they were astonishing. And, you know, there were so many of the clients who, A, had pets, yes. Uh, some of them had cats and dogs at various ages. And they, like the majority of them, stated that they were feeding their pets the meals that Meals on Wheels were bringing them because they couldn't afford to feed them, but that they could not, they could not even imagine parting with them. So we saw from that that there was absolutely a need for our shelter to work with this program. And we just got cracking right away. You know, how are we going to put this together? Can we get a grant for this? You know, because we didn't want um, with Mills on Wheels working through the government in New Jersey, we didn't want, you know, there's always going to be some person who's like, why are my tax dollars going to that? You know, so we wanted to make sure that it was grant funded. We wanted to make sure that it was something that was sustainable. And we just put the whole project together. And, and by the end of it, what was the result was we had lists of clients. We would give them numbers and not names because we wanted their names to be anonymous. And then we would just have like, a dry erase board with like all the clients, the pets that they had, if they had cats, dogs, if they were adults or seniors, if they had special diet requirements. Um, and we would basically make those to-go bags up for those families. And the Mills on Wheels driver would make a stop at the shelter, pick up those meals. And then when they were dropping off the meals to the clients, they would also drop off the meals for their pets. Wow. That's a fantastic program, and you know you accomplish so much. You're you're meeting those people where they are. You're you know you're engaging with them before something becomes a crisis, and you're building on infrastructure that already exists. So you're not having to completely reinvent the wheel to reach these people. There's already a wonderful, successful organization doing this well and reaching the most vulnerable people in our community. And, and then you, you just added on to it something that they needed. So that's amazing. Uh, I hope that other folks listening, you know, get some ideas from, from that program you created. So, yeah, I mean, it, it really, we got around Christmas time. We actually, it, it was very unexpected. We got a bunch of cards from clients through this program. And they were just like, you know, thank you guys so much for helping us to be able to keep our pets in our homes. And, you know, we could tell from talking to the Mills on Wheels crew that this really meant a lot to those clients and being able to retain ownership. And, you know, had I stayed there, our next step was going to try and work on grant funding for medical care. Mm. Um, that would have been fantastic. You know, I, I did end up you know, deciding to leave that particular shelter. But, you know, it was something that I was very proud of. And I and I still am. And I, I know that these things are possible. And, you know, Aurora and I have talked about these things. And Aurora has the same kind of ideas. And, right. you know, it's, it's just wonderful to be at a place with the organization who thinks that way, 
and cares about the community and really wants to to do something because unfortunately there were you know a few more things that could have happened that that just didn't because you know someone up the lines didn't agree that it was a necessity i was at a, a shelter in ben salem and i wanted to open a food pet pantry and you know, th this was like months and months and months of asking to see if this could happen. And, and it seemed like such a simple, basic thing for a shelter to be able to do. And then finally, I got the response as to why it wouldn't happen. And I realized what the issue was. And the response was, you know, we don't want to attract those kind of people here. Wow. And I thought, well, what are we doing then? You know, Wait, what, what's what's the point of all of this? Right. You know what we have. We just have to do better. And I and like you, I'm so happy that this is a conversation that race is a conversation that, you know, the the stigmas with socioeconomic status is a, is a common conversation. Mm -hmm. And that these things are coming to the forefront and that people are saying, hey, you know, this is really an issue for us in animal welfare. Right. I, I mean, it's it's a hard conversation and I, I'm grateful to everybody willing to have it. I mean, I I looked at the, um, you know, the Amazon bestseller list, the New York Times bestseller list right now. And I'm just like, wow, that's really hopeful. Everyone is reading up on this and trying to learn and trying to lead in. I mean, not everyone, unfortunately, but a lot of people. And so, you know, I'm just really grateful that, you know, you're you were willing to have this conversation with me and um, spend this time talking about it. I think this is, you know, something that we can spend hours talking about. <laughs> and I, I mean, I think in some ways, corporate America has figured a few things out that, you know, there's been a numerous studies that the more diverse your C-suite is, the better your product. And right. Um, because you are reaching a broader clientele, you are tapping into the needs of um, the people that are going to buy your products. And I think that's something we're coming to in animal welfare, that people of different backgrounds are going to be contributing in many different rich ways to what we are doing and the services we are providing in our community. And, um, you know, I know I know many organizations, including our own, are really looking at that. And, you know, we're we're trying to figure out how we can, you know, foster diversity and in, in, in our hiring, but also inclusivity and and make sure there's opportunities for everyone to grow in our organization right. and thrive and um, and become leaders. So I'm. Thank you, Deisha, for your time and, you know, sharing sharing your experiences. And I, I really hope that we can talk again very soon. Sure. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure.